On this episode of the Discover the Word podcast, Dr. Mark Young, president of Denver Seminary, joins the group for some conversations about transcendence, the transcendence of God. One of the ways that we think about and understand God is both transcendent and God is imminent. I do think that it is a foundational truth that we often tend to lean into on one side or the other. Hmm. And when we lean into one side of it at the exclusion of the other, Hmm. then we've moved into a way of thinking about God that is contrary to the way God reveals himself to us in Scripture. And so discover what is meant by the transcendence and imminence of God, why those two ideas are so foundational and important, and identify which way you lean. As Elisa Morgan and Daniel Ryan Day welcome Dr. Mark Young to the table to start a new year studying the Bible together on Discover the Word. Well, Happy New Year and welcome to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. Looking forward to studying the scriptures together in 2023. And I think you may find this to be a surprisingly significant way to start our studies for the new year, because I think Mark Young is right. We do tend to lean in one direction or the other when it comes to transcendent and imminent. And I think you'll quickly identify which direction that we're most likely to lean at this point in time. And so much needed balance is what our study this week should provide. And I really do hope this will be a memorable perspective shaping time that we spend with Elisa and Daniel and Denver Seminary President, Dr. Mark Young. So if you're ready, let's pull our chairs up to the table and get this study of transcendence underway. We have one of my dear friends with us for these conversations. So this is Dr. Mark Young, president of Denver Seminary that I've known for over a decade now. Dr. Young, it's a privilege to meet you. I've heard a lot about you, although if I'm honest, Elisa says a lot of people are her good friends, but I think <laughs> I've heard a little more about about you, and so it's really nice to meet you. Thank you, guys. It's great to be with you as well. I remember the last time so fondly, and I'm looking forward to these sessions together. We're going to dive into a very interesting conversation. I actually heard him present this material that we're going to be talking about at a board meeting at Denver Seminary, and it grabbed me as so Mm. profound. It's something we often think about and talk about, but the way Mark grabbed it and packaged it really helped me in my own relationship with Jesus. So, Mark, we're going to be talking about what's called transcendence, and specifically the transcendence of Jesus. So help us understand that. Take us into where you want us to go. Sure. So one of the ways that we think about and understand God is kind of in a binary scenario or opposites, that God is both transcendent and God is imminent. And just to stop for a second, transcendent and imminent, help us define those terms, would you? Sure. Okay. So that's also a way a lot of philosophers view the world, right? So Mm -hmm. imminent is that which is present that which is now, that which is immediately with us, our experience, what we are experiencing. And transcendent describes that which is outside of our experience, above and beyond our experience. And what's amazing about the Christian faith, unlike many other religious traditions, in fact, all of the major religious traditions, 
is that in Christianity, we believe that God is at the same time imminent and transcendent. Hmm. That sets us apart. And so the incarnation of Jesus is a most concrete expression of this startling reality that since the beginning of creation, God is both imminent hmm. and transcendent. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard to understand. It is hard to understand. And I do think that it is a foundational truth that we often tend to lean into on one side or the other. And when we lean into one side of it at the exclusion of the other, mm. then we've moved into a way of thinking about God that is contrary to the way God reveals himself to us in Scripture. So in the midst of COVID, especially in that summer of 2020, I felt as if everything that was happening in the world had entrapped me. Mm-hmm. It was smothering me. COVID was raging, the uncertainty around what that meant. The social fabric of our nation seemed to be coming apart. Relationships were fractured. Violence was very much a part of our experience. Mm. And I felt like I was drowning in all that was happening in my immediate world and in those around me. (laughs) And that actually reminded me of an experience I'd had uh, when I was going to learn to scuba dive. (laughs) So my wife and I were on a dive boat in the Pacific, and this instructor went through the whole thing, and he says, well, we'll jump in the water, and then we'll go down a few feet, and I'll be watching you, and we'll use hand signals. You tell me what you want. And he said, when you get in, I'll be watching your face to see how you're breathing and how your eyes look. So anyway, I got in, and I was in the water 20 seconds and I thought I was dying. (laughs) I completely freaked out. I was drowning, right? And I wasn't more than probably a foot under the surface of the water, but I thought I was drowning. (laughs) And so I gave him the signal and he brought me up. I thought to myself, in the midst of COVID and the social fabric of our nation coming apart, I feel like I'm drowning Mm. in what's immediate. Mm -hmm. And what I need more than anything else is to remember and hold on to the fact that God is here, but also God transcends all this. He isn't trapped in the immediate. He isn't drowning in all that's occurring in our world. And so that launched me on a study of times in the Gospels when those who accompanied Jesus experienced his transcendence in very powerful ways. Mm -hmm. And as I began to put those together, I began to see that if we're not willing to enter into and see God's transcendence in the midst of the world and whatever we're experiencing, uh, we can't truly know him. We can't truly believe in him. We can't truly love him. We can't truly follow him. And we can't truly hope in him. Mm And so that's how this whole series of studies came together. Mm, mm. And in this Mm. conversation, you want to show us how Peter specifically was changed by the transcendent Jesus. Where do you want us to look? What what passage are you focused on? We're going to look at the passage in Mark chapter 9 that describes the transfiguration of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And the basic theme of it is that Peter needed to see the transcendent Jesus, in order to truly know him. 
it's very important for us to remember the way Peter's relationship with Jesus had been growing. I always like to think back to that first encounter in Luke chapter 5 where Jesus fills up Peter's boat with fish, mm-hmm. and then there's that call to follow him. And what I always think about is everything Jesus had been talking about before that to a man like Peter was just rabbi talk. <laughs> it's just, you know, kind of God talk. And, mm-hmm. of course, Jesus had this amazing way of saying profound things in ways that you only saw the profundity of it mm-hmm. after you thought about it for a while. <laughs> and so I can imagine Peter going, oh, yeah, here he goes again. But when you fill up my boat with fish, <laughs> that's the real deal. Yeah. Now you're speaking my language. <laughs> now you're speaking my language, right? Fill up my boat with fish. So Peter starts this journey with Jesus. And along the way, I think there are a lot of things Peter really enjoys. Like, I think Peter enjoys the way Jesus always puts the Pharisees in their place. You know, he's fascinated by the miracles, the power that Jesus demonstrates over disease and even the weather. We have this series of miracles in Mark chapters 7 and 8. And then you get to this marvelous declaration in Mark eight twenty seven. That you know begins with Jesus asking, "Who do people say I am?" And some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. And then he specifically says to them, "What well, what about you? Who do you say I am?" And Peter says, "You are the Messiah." Mm-hmm. This great declaration that all mm-hmm. of the Gospels have as a fulcrum in the way the story unfolds. So the story builds to this confession, Mm. and then it flows out of this confession in all of the Gospels that contain it. But after that great confession, the very next story in Mark's Gospel is Jesus saying to them that he must be killed and three days later rise again. Mm -hmm. And of course, at that point, Peter says, wait a minute, that's not the way Messiah is going to be in the world. And then Jesus rebukes him. Mm -hmm. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So Peter had the confession, but he didn't really know Jesus. Hmm. Then follows this call of sacrifice in Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 34. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross So then after Jesus rebukes Peter, is this demand or this call to a discipleship that's costly. Hmm. And then we get to the crux of the story for today. That starts in Mark chapter 9. So Daniel, would you read Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 1, and then moving down to verse 12? Sure. And he said to them, truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Mm. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. 
As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter for themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. Yeah, so the centerpiece of the story is this remarkable appearance of Jesus that we see at the end of verse 2. He was transfigured. Mm -hmm. And then Mark, the other Gospels, give us this description of this whiteness. Mark talks about his clothing being dazzling white. Matthew talks about his face as well being white. And it's a whiter white than (laughs) any human could create. And so all of a sudden, this Jesus that Peter has walked with, this Jesus that's done these miracles, appears to Peter in a way that he's never seen Jesus before, Hmm. in a way he's never seen any other human being before. And so it's one thing to say, you're the Messiah, the one we're waiting for. But now he sees this one he loves, this one he has known, appear in a way that completely takes him off guard and frightens him. Mark is very kind in his gospel in verse 6. He says, they didn't know what to say because they were so frightened. (laughs) They were overwhelmed by this dazzlingly white Jesus standing before them. And then we see beside Jesus, Elijah and Moses, verse 4. It's really fascinating. We don't know if they're dazzling white. We know Jesus is. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But Elijah and Moses, long dead, those who would be considered by most Jews kind of the linchpin of both the one who establishes what Israel was to live by, Moses, and that prophetic voice of what God's going to do through Messiah, Elijah. And then in verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi. This is a, a fascinating, I think, statement. Now, again, to Peter's credit, he just, like, I don't know what to say. So, Rabbi. I've called <laughs> Jesus Rabbi every day I've been with him. I'm just going to call him Rabbi. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when you think about what he has confessed Jesus to be as Messiah, and now he has this appearance of Jesus as dazzling white, Peter just naturally steps back into the imminent to that way he has known uh, Jesus and experienced him. And he says, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And so at that point, again, giving Peter all the credit of being frightened, he seems to be saying, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, they're the same. Mm. Rabbi, prophet, lawgiver, they're the same. But the Lord, the Father, then confirms that Jesus is more than a rabbi. He is the very Son of God. This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. Hmm. Certainly, listen to him will carry Peter through, but it also takes Peter back back to the way Jesus has rebuked him when he denied that Jesus would, in fact, need to die, back to Peter's perhaps resistance to Jesus saying, guess what, Peter, you're going to die too if you follow me. Hmm. So in order for Peter to truly know Jesus, he has to see Jesus as transcendent, Mm -hmm. the very Son of God, whose word, whose person, exceeds anything that anyone else 
could say. And in the same way, we're invited to, in the midst of all the chaos that you described early in the conversation, to find that Jesus is not only with us in the midst of all of that, but also above it and leading us through. Yes. He's not just giving us tips on how to survive. He is sovereignly reigning over the earth, sovereignly directing all that occurs toward the end that he has ordained. And for me to think that in the midst of all this chaos and the suffering that we see, there is one who lives above it as he walks with us in it, who's directing it to his end, creates a foundation for me to live through it. So we've been talking about this a whole idea of how Jesus is both transcendent and eminent. And I think that as we try to understand how we come to faith in Jesus and how we continue to believe in him, we need to ask this question that was asked to me a few years back. Mark, what keeps you following Jesus? What keeps Mm. you believing in Jesus? Mm. So how would you have answered that question if it were put to you? Hmm. What keeps you believing in Jesus? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. I think it depends on the day. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes other people in my life remind me of the goodness of following Jesus, especially in moments of questioning or doubt or wondering if I want to keep on this journey of the Christian faith. And it's the community around me that reminds me that, oh yeah, this is good. Think about the things God has done in your life. And they point those out. I think sometimes I have what I would call real experiences with God, where he speaks through the scriptures. And what I mean by that is I get a sense of seeing something maybe I haven't seen before, or even just in prayer, sometimes having a sense that God's actually there with me, although that's honestly Mm -hmm. pretty rare. Mm -hmm. But those are some of the things that come to mind that keep me following. That's good. And for me, Mark, you know, in our last conversation, we talked about beginning to discover the transcendence of Jesus. And it's amazing for me that once that foundation is laid, once I have come to know God, I stand on this planet differently. I stand in relationship with him. And so it begins to shape and interpret everything that I do differently. And it's not always perfect. You know, I don't always experience that. But I'm changed. I'm, you know, like we were talking about the transfiguration of Jesus. You know, I'm different because I know God. So does that help what you're talking about? It does. Yeah. Yeah. I think we have to continue to ask ourselves, why do I still believe? If we're really honest, right, we go through these types of scenarios where the life that God seems to have promised us may not be the life we're experiencing, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or that the brokenness of the world just piles upon us in ways that we just don't think this is the way God intended it to be. Mm -hmm. And so we have to challenge ourselves, why am I still believing? Why do I continue to believe? I think that's exactly the experience that Thomas, the disciple, had. Hmm. I think Thomas was kind of the ultimate realist. We don't know a lot about Thomas. Let's give Thomas a break, right? (laughs) We don't have a lot of contact with him in the Gospels. The first time we really see Thomas is John 11, when they've been told they're going to go back to where Lazarus has just died. And Thomas says, okay, let us go back. We're going to die. 
<laughs> right? They're going to go back to Judea where they were trying to kill him. So let's go back. We're going to die. He's a realist. But let's give him credit. He's going back. Hmm. I don't know the story. It seems to me that Thomas probably came to faith with a struggle, slowly. I don't know about this guy, Jesus. I don't know if what he's saying is real. Hmm. I'm going to kind of come into this with a bit of a skepticism. But when he believes, it is a faith that takes him into places he would have never gone before. Hmm. That's why, can you imagine what Thomas experiences when this Jesus, whom he's been slow to come to believe in, is crucified? Mm. How do you imagine Thomas's experience between the death of Jesus and then this story that he's been resurrected that he hasn't yet personally experienced? Yeah, it feels crushing the way Mm. you're describing that. Mark. And, you know, we do give Thomas a bad rap. He's the guy who has to touch Jesus. And, you know, everybody else is fine seeing the empty tomb. But it feels crushing because if he was a person who really needed demonstrable proof and that this is the Messiah, yeah, it would be crushing. And maybe he was the one brave enough to ask for the opportunity to touch Jesus, too. You know, we mm-hmm. often think of him as doubting Thomas, but maybe he's honest Thomas, right? Like maybe he's the more honest of the other disciples. And I wonder too, if he is such a realist, I mean, his response, I'm sure it would have been crushing in so many ways, especially to see the way Jesus suffered. But I also wonder too, if there was a part of him, like some people I know who in situations like this are like, yeah, see, I knew in my core that I shouldn't have believed, right? Like I I had already had those questions. And now that I've seen Jesus killed, it's like, that's what I get for getting pulled into the hype. I, I usually don't get pulled in. I think that's very much a part of the experience of many in the millennial generation, as well as those following. They experience this profound disappointment with mm-hmm. God. Mm-hmm. Life doesn't turn out the way we promised that it would when they were raised in church. Mm-hmm. And that disappointment often then leads for them to engage in what we're euphemistically calling deconstruction, which is in some cases really good, just asking good Mm -hmm. questions about faith, Mm -hmm. but many times leads to no faith. You know, just just to pause right there, Mark, I think for boomer generations, we're not as honest. Mm -hmm. And we go, well, it's God, you know, I don't understand, and it's God. But that honesty of younger generations really serves us well, doesn't it? It does. Mm -hmm. Why don't we uh, actually read that passage where Thomas has the opportunity to encounter Jesus, the transcendent, resurrected Jesus, in John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. Elisa, would you read that for us? Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet have believed. Have you ever imagined sometimes that when you read Scripture, what kind of music would be playing in the background if this were a movie? It's <laughs> <laughs> good. Because the, the music adds the emotional impact. Mm. So how do you envision the emotions being played mm. out in that room mm. when this encounter occurs with Jesus and Thomas and the other disciples. What's in your biblical imagination when you think about that scene? Yeah, the first question I always have is, where was he, right? Like of all the times to volunteer to go get the bread for dinner, this was a rough time for him to volunteer to do that because he misses Jesus showing up or whatever. But then I always wonder, like, what is he thinking? Are they playing a joke on him that's like Mm. that he feels is really ill-timed and a bad joke, right? Like, what, (laughs) really? You're going to joke about that right now? Mm. Or is there a little bit of a wanting to believe what they're saying is true, but just knowing how he's been hurt before this? And so it's like, unless I see him and touch him, I can't believe that that Mm. really happened. I saw what happened on the cross. Mm. I saw that. And I have a hard time believing what you're saying is true. So I don't know. It feels like a a range. Maybe it's like a comedy music if they're trying to play a bad (laughs) joke. And maybe it's like this epic battle of five armies in the Hobbit music as he's, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. And I I hear just tense music as well. Yeah. Right. Just this kind of dun, dun, dun. Yeah. (laughs) The poor guy. How do we know him? Doubting Thomas. That is so unfair. Yeah. But let's ask the question about doubt. I think there are two kinds of doubt. Mm. There is a doubt framed by hope. Mm. I want something to be true, but I just can't be sure that it's true. And I think there is a doubt grounded in skepticism. I'm not going to believe in this. It just can't be true. The doubt grounded in hope or framed by hope can lead to faith. Mm. The doubt grounded in skepticism leads to cynicism. Hmm. I think Thomas desperately wanted Jesus to be raised from the dead, Mm. but he's a realist. Mm -hmm. He needed proof. And Jesus offers him the single most intimate experience of what it means to know him of any place in the Gospels. Hmm. I in my imagination, see Jesus guiding Thomas's hand mm. to his side and to the wounds in his hands. Jesus knew exactly what Thomas needed. The transcendent risen Jesus guides Thomas's hands to what he needs most to believe. Mm. And then Thomas makes the fullest confession mm. of the identity of Jesus anywhere in the New Testament my Lord and my God. Hmm. And that always makes me ask the question, what do I need Jesus to do for me (laughs) to be able to make that confession, my Lord and my God? So Mark, speak to the person that hears that and is like, okay, I I think I know what Jesus needs to do for me to believe, but he hasn't. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the question is, what does Jesus need to do for me in order for me to believe? And the answer is, he's already done it. He's already done it. The great act of Jesus bringing us to him is the act of Jesus on the cross, breaking down all the barriers. The great act of God in raising Jesus from the dead 
is all that we need to step toward him. And so we may be asking for some kind of a sign or a miracle. We may think we need what Thomas needed. But just after this encounter, Jesus said, blessed are those who don't see and believe. Hmm. Blessed are those who don't touch and believe. There is a reality for us to believe in that is already established in what Jesus did on the cross and in the resurrection from the dead. So back to the original question, what keeps me following Jesus? When the friend asked that, I said back to her without even thinking, the resurrection. Mm. If the resurrection isn't true, then there's no reason to have faith. So Jesus has already done for us what we need to keep believing. You're at the table with Elisa Morgan, Daniel Ryan Day, and Dr. Mark Young, president of Denver Seminary, for a discussion about the transcendence of God. Uh, throughout this series, we'll explore key passages and characters in the Bible to help us better understand the aspect of God that goes beyond our human experience, to help us balance the concepts of transcendence and imminence. And in the next segment of the conversation, they're going to use the example of Peter in the Bible to reveal how God's transcendence speaks into our broken places and restores us for his purposes. Because let me ask you this, if you could hear Jesus say something directly to you today, what would you want that message to be? What is it you think you need to hear most from Jesus today? Well, Mark asks Elisa and Daniel that question to start the next part of the conversation, and we'll hear what they have to say after a quick timeout. Well, before we continue this conversation about transcendence with Dr. Mark Young, I want to point you to a book he wrote that our Our Daily Bread publishing group published recently. It's called One True Story, One True God, What the Bible is All About. And it's interesting, several years ago when Mark was with us here on Discover the Word, uh, he told us a story about someone on an airplane asking him a question that ended up leading to the writing of this book. Uh, one time had the blessing of God to be upgraded on a flight, and I thought, oh, what a blessing. I can just sit in this chair. My goal for this whole flight is to say nothing to anyone, just to enjoy this. So I thought to myself, what should I do to ensure that no one talks to me? <laughs> and so I decided that one of the ways I could make sure that no one talked to me was to lay my Bible on my lap. Yeah, so uh, how do you think that strategy worked out, to have his open Bible be a repellent for anyone wanting to talk to him? Uh, yeah, it, it didn't work out that way. We'd just taken off, and this gentleman sitting beside me leans over, touches the Bible on my lap, mm. and looks at me and says, what's that book about? He didn't know it was a Bible, and he certainly had no awareness of the story of the Bible. I think that question illustrated for me, if we're not careful, we dive into the details so much we lose sight of the whole, and we can't answer that question. What's that book about? Well, the book that Mark wrote came out of his searching to find the best way to answer, what's that book about? And I hope you'll get a copy of Mark Young's book, One True Story, One True God, when you go online to discovertheword.org. There on our site, you'll see a store tab up at the top of the page. Click on that and you'll find the book and a way to order it through our store. 
And now let's listen as our guest, Dr. Mark Young, points us to a story in the Gospels in John chapter 21 that demonstrates a balance between these concepts of transcendence and imminence. So when we're talking about the transcendence of Jesus, sometimes we want to hold it in a way that denies the imminence of Jesus. And as we said at the very beginning, what's unique about our faith is that Jesus is both imminent and transcendent. So I think one of the questions we have to ask is, what are those messages that we want to hear from Jesus, that we need to hear from Jesus Mm -hmm. in order for us to truly respond to him with Mm -hmm. faith and in order for us to truly love him. So let's just think openly about if we were going to hear something from Jesus today, what would we want him to say to us? What (laughs) message would matter to us? I've got this. (laughs) That's what I want him to say to me. I've got this, Elisa. I've got this. Yes. Yeah, I was thinking that's a very personal question. And I would imagine if we were able to invite all the people in our audience into this conversation, if we were all honest, we all might have a slightly different Mm -hmm. thing that we really need to hear from Jesus or from God, the Holy Spirit in general. So I think sometimes it's important to kind of note how personal that question can be. Yeah. 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 But then at the same time, uh, I think it's maybe hard for me to answer that if I'm honest. It's like, what do I need to hear from the Lord There are times when I need to hear, I got this, when I'm overwhelmed. There Mm -hmm. are times that I need to hear, I love you. There are times I need to hear, you don't have to do anything for me to be pleased with you. Mm. So those are some of the ones that come to mind, but I'm like sitting here right now, like, what do do I need to hear? Maybe my peace is sufficient for you, so just Mm -hmm. trust me. Yeah. Might be what I'm feeling right now. Yeah. So we've got to turn it around, Mark, and ask you, what do you need to hear? You know, all of the things that you've said. Mm. I think at this point in my life, as I have walked with Christ and served Christ and been involved in ministry for four decades or more, I'd love to hear from Jesus. You've done okay. <laughs> You've pursued a path I laid before you with a way, in a way that I'm pleased with. Mm. What do you think Peter needed to hear from Jesus? Oh. The first conversation. I yeah. forgive you. I forgive you. Yeah. Let's explore that yeah. story together, okay. right? Okay. John chapter 21, there's this marvelous story when Jesus and Peter have their first conversation, as far as we know, after those awful moments that awful experience in the garden. And one of the things I want us to think about, when Peter denies knowing Jesus in the garden, I don't think this was a denial of the sense, I no longer believe Jesus is the Messiah. I think what happens there was simply a visceral cry of a broken heart. Mm. He just could not in any way deal with the suffering that he had seen Jesus experience and the path that lay before him. Mm. I don't think Peter's love for Jesus is ever in question Mm. in the Gospels. He loved the miracles. He loved it when Jesus put the Pharisees in their place. Think about it, Peter's the only disciple that tries to defend Jesus in the garden. And I've often thought, you know, he probably would have done a better job if he'd had a net instead of a sword, (laughs) right? Throw a fisherman's net over those soldiers. 
And that's why Peter's denial in the garden shocks us. You know, that is so beautiful, Mark. You know, as we talked about with Thomas, we have these contextual presuppositions about these humans. (laughs) And we read the stories through the lenses that we have created. And to think about Peter's denial being from a broken heart, being from just the stunned moment Mm -hmm. of watching the Messiah be bruised and beaten, that is so rich. It really shifts my understanding of him. Yeah. And so then I think when we put ourselves back in the story and we ask, what did Peter need to hear from Jesus? Mm. I think he needed to hear, Peter, I know that you love me. Mm. So when we have this encounter, this beautiful encounter in John 21, Mm. which has marvelous comedic elements in it, Mm-hmm. You know, that whole thing, it's the Lord. Probably John cries out and Peter gets in the water. And <laughs> <laughs> we have no clue in the text that Peter gets to shore first, you know, because I have this image of the boat gliding past Peter <laughs> and they get there before he does, even though he jumped in. There's nothing in the text to indicate he gets there first. And this is seemingly the first opportunity that Peter will have to have a real conversation with Jesus. Let's read those verses that Mm -hmm. describes that first encounter with them on the shore. Maybe start in verse uh, 12. I like verse 12, so I think that's a great place to start. Okay, good. (laughs) Jesus said to them, to the disciples that were there, not all of them are there, right? Just a handful. That's right. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. (laughs) Can we just pause there and all have breakfast together? (laughs) Right. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And then the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Let's kind of unpack this a bit. The verse you love, come and have breakfast, is, I think, just as marvelous an invitation as touch my side, Thomas. Mm. It's intimate. It's relationship building. Mm. And then Jesus serves them breakfast, right? This is the resurrected Son of God, and he's saying, come and have breakfast. Let me serve you. Further evidence that he did not come to be served but to serve and to offer his life. And it's a charcoal fire and all that too, right? So he must have gotten there early and set up and cooked yeah. for a while. And <laughs> or he that. went poof. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you enter the end of this trifold question. And of course, commentators are right on the mark and saying three times Jesus asks a question as a way to interact with the three denials that Peter is still dealing with in his own heart. And each time, do you love me? Hmm. And Peter keeps saying, you know that I love you. Hmm. You know that. What does Peter desperately need to hear from Jesus? Hmm. I love you, Peter. I know that you love me. Hmm. 
I think what Jesus is really asking Peter is this, what matters most to you, Peter? Mm. Do I matter most to you? And do you know that you matter to me? You know, just to pause for a second with that and let that sink in, Mark, there are so many times that I will make a mistake and I come back to God and I'm like, I think I'm questioning, you know? And the way you're expressing Peter's need to hear from Jesus I know you love me. That really sits with me. That's a powerful way to hear that. It's like it moves me from trying to fix it to embracing that God has fixed it, that he knows my heart, that even though I make these mistakes, my love really hasn't shifted. So it like moves me past that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can I push back a little bit, though? I don't sure. see Jesus saying, I know you love me or I love you. Because each time his response is something about feed my lambs or feed my sheep. So I I hear you that Peter needed to hear, I love you, it's okay. But Jesus doesn't say that here. So what is Jesus entrusting to Peter? Mm. The church, his body, (laughs) his people. Yeah. You know, at the end of Jesus' earthly existence, he leaves behind his most precious possession, his people. And so as Jesus entrusts his people, and in many regards, entrusts those through whom his great mission in the world will be accomplished. He entrusts to Peter the nurturance of that which is most precious to him on earth, his people. Hmm. And I think what's happening here is that as Peter recognizes what Jesus is entrusting to him and will recognize as he continues to serve throughout the pages of the New Testament and beyond. He's having reaffirmed in his own thinking that, yes, Jesus knows that I love him. Jesus knows that I'm faithful to him Hmm. because he's entrusting to me what is most precious to him. And there is a fascinating layer to this story, the fact that the person who was unfaithful by denying Jesus is the one being handed responsibility in this story. Yeah. Because oftentimes we think of our mistakes as the things that disqualify us. Right. And yet here is Jesus with his often upside down or maybe right side up and we're all upside down (laughs) thinking of someone who failed, who made mistakes. And that's the person that Jesus is handing this responsibility to. And then even the way this story ends Jesus looks at him and says, follow me. Uh And it's almost like a redo of the very beginning of the story. You know, Jesus on a lakeshore asked Peter to follow him. And Peter said, yes, thinking that he knew what that meant. And here at the end of the story, Jesus is looking at him on a lakeshore again, saying, follow me and giving him an opportunity to do that after maybe he has a better picture of what that actually might mean. That's right. I totally agree with you. The reality here is in the midst of our living in this broken world, we're going to make confessions, whether in our behavior or through our lips, that seem to deny the lordship of Jesus in our lives. And isn't it remarkable that we can then also recognize that Jesus continues to entrust to us that which is most precious to him, his people, and the testimony of his name through his people. That's a powerful way for us to think of hearing the transcendent Jesus in order for us to love him truly.
So we've been discussing how as we live in this world, we need to understand and see and believe in Jesus who transcends this world, who's mm-hmm. above and beyond our experience. And today I want us to take a few moments and think about someone who had to have a unique kind of encounter with a transcendent Jesus in order to truly follow him. But I want us to begin by asking about breaking horses. Hmm. Do either of you have experience or stories related to breaking a horse? Well, I grew up with horses, and I watched a horse being trained. And I have to admit, I always hated the term breaking a horse because it sounds so violent and like you're hurting the animal in some way. But really just that term is referring to training an animal so that you can trust it when you're riding on it. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching, we got this young colt, Domingo, when I was a kid. And (laughs) watching that horse being worked with out in a paddock and learning how to to get the horse to trust you first by bringing food or treats or something. And then over time, using a harness and then eventually a bit and then eventually a saddle and then eventually riding the horse and just how long that process can take sometimes. It's the idea that you're breaking the habits of a horse, Mm -hmm. right? A horse in the wild, you have to, in that retraining, you're getting different patterns of response and you're bringing experiences to them that cause them to think differently, yeah. talk about hor- respond differently to human presence, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rather than running away or ultimately when you want to try to ride, bucking off. Mm-hmm. I think there's a parallel here with the person known as Saul in the New Testament. He has a profound experience that includes a horse. Um, in his coming to understand Mm. who Jesus is, meeting the transcendent Jesus. And I want us to look at that story in Acts chapter 26, ultimately. But I want us to think a bit about Saul. Mm. We'll call him Paul, as he is called by the Lord. I think Paul was a violent man. Mm. In Acts chapter 8, we read about him destroying the church and dragging off both men and women. Mm. I think Paul was an arrogant man. He used his position. He used his knowledge. He used his training to dominate, to be authoritarian. He describes himself this way in Acts 26. He says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. I think we want to ask ourselves the question, how does Jesus... How does God reach an enraged and arrogant and violent man Hmm. like the Apostle Paul? Paul himself tells us how that happened. (laughs) If we could, let's read Acts chapter 26, verses 12 to 18. I've got that. This is Paul speaking. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, 
and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul tells this story three times. I'm sure he told it many more times, Mm -hmm. but three times it's recorded in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, and in Acts chapter 26. And there are some slight differences in the details of the story, but in all three of the accounts, Paul ends up on the ground. (laughs) You can picture it in your mind. I picture it face down in the dirt, broken before the Lord, blinded by him. Interestingly, the bright light that shines around them, reminiscent of the light that Peter saw, the Mm -hmm. dazzling whiteness, whiter than anyone could bleach. Mm. When he's in the dirt, Jesus calls him by name, Saul, Saul. This is not some kind of a general experience. This is personal. Mm. This is for you, Saul. Now, Mark, quick question about that. So we've been calling him Paul, but here he's referred to as Saul. What do we make of the two different names? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, as Saul becomes someone who follows Jesus, this new identity that comes with the name Paul is emblematic, Mm. or it represents the total transformation of his life Mm. from one who violently opposed Jesus to one who follows Jesus. Mm. So there are a few different ways to think about that, as is true in all of biblical scholarship and everything we see in the Bible. (laughs) But I think what happens in the issues of conversion in the New Testament, it's the movement from one identity to another. Mm. And that's actually what baptism signifies. So the movement from Saul to Paul, in my view, is one way that signifies his complete transformation from one who violently opposes Jesus to one who follows Jesus. And Mark, that's super helpful. In uh, verse 14, after he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. G-O-A-D-S. What? Huh? What are those? (laughs) Do we have those today? (laughs) Well, it's interesting because when we think about goads, we go back to horses. Goads are used for driving animals. Oh, Right? So you goad an animal with a stick to drive it. Not so much horses, but certainly other animals as well. And so the implication here is that God is moving Saul, Jesus is moving Saul toward a life that he could never possibly envision. That life being confessing that Jesus is indeed the crucified Son of God Hmm. and taking that good news to Gentiles Mm. of all people. So the transcendence of Jesus in this story is not just in this supernatural event of blinding him and knocking him over the horse. His transcendence is that he is saying to Saul, 
I am authoritative. I am sovereign over everything in your life. You are going to become someone that I have ordained that you could never imagine. Mm -hmm. So don't resist. Don't kick against the goads that are moving you toward this person that I have ordained you to be. You know, there is a television series (laughs) that is coming to my mind right now. And the way they portray a horse breaking, as we were describing, and I typically think violent like you guys were talking about, and like a bucking bronco riding until he, you know, finally bows. But the way they portray it is Amy, who is more like a horse whisperer, works with a horse, directing it back and forth. And for days, it's not like an instantaneous thing, but the way she finally guarantees that it will change is after she has it at a significant working place, she actually turns her back on the horse and walks away. And the horse will demonstrate its trust by following her. Fascinating. And nuzzles her back. And I have seen that so many times. It's a gentle putting the horse in its place, and then the horse has an allegiance. And Yeah, I know that Paul had a a bit of a more dramatic experience than that. But in the end, for all of us, there is a point we come to where we choose to follow. And it's very meaningful to understand that's really what God is wanting. He woos us to follow. That's right. I think the personal nature of this is important too, right? He calls Saul by name, and then he says, Saul, why do you persecute me? Again, this is a personal encounter between the risen Christ, the reigning Christ, and an individual who's opposed him. And so inviting him into this impossible identity and mission requires that willingness to say, yes, this is Jesus. Yes, I am Jesus. Follow me. Hmm. I think in, in order for us to really follow the Lord, We have to recognize his sovereign role, his sovereign rule, his sovereign engagement. He is the master of this story, and he then is the one we have to bow before in order to truly follow him. Just like the horse will follow that woman when she's finished, we will follow Jesus. And what's also interesting is in verse 14, Jesus tells Saul, it hurts you when you push against this. And oftentimes when we think about following God because he's sovereign and he knows what's best and everything, it makes it sound like it's so much about God that it doesn't matter what happens to people. And what I see in this story, I think as well, is yes, it's for God's glory as the one who's sovereign and who knows what's best, but it's also for our good too. That's true. I think it's important to remember it too at the end of Paul's life. He is deeply satisfied Mm. with the life that he's had of following Jesus, seeing himself as being fully and wholly poured out in sacrifice to the Lord. What a marvelous way to end a life of following the risen, transcendent Christ. That is a worthy goal for each of us to get to the end and look back at a life of following the risen, transcendent Christ listening to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. And in this episode, you're studying with Elisa Morgan, Daniel Ryan Day, and Dr. Mark Young, president of Denver Seminary, 
as they explore God's transcendence. And we've got one 11 and a half minute segment to go in which they'll skip ahead to the end of the Bible to consider how the transcendence of God is revealed in the book of Revelation. That fascinating and hopeful part of the conversation comes up after a quick reminder about that book that Mark wrote that we recommend you get a copy of. All right, just before we wrap up this study with Dr. Mark Young of Denver Seminary, I want to invite you one more time to get a copy of the book he wrote called One True Story, One True God, What the Bible is All About. This book reveals that throughout the Bible, we see the story of how God is working throughout history, from the beginning with creation to the end with when Jesus returns. And that story is a redemption story, a rescue story. Now, Marta Hahn, who is, of course, part of our Discover the Word group, wrote an endorsement for the book in which he simply said, from introduction to end notes, one true God was for me a breath of fresh air. And so I hope you will go online to our website at discovertheword.org and look for the store tab up at the top of the page. Click on store and you'll find in our store, along with some other books you may be interested in, Mark's book, One True Story, One True God. You can order a copy right there. Again, look for One True Story, One True God when you go online to discovertheword.org and click on the tab to our store. And now let's listen as Mark Young takes us to the book of Revelation to show us how, in the way the story ends, we see the transcendence of God. I have some friends, in fact, someone who's very dear to me, that when they are reading a book, as the tension mounts, they'll go to the end of the book and read the end of the book to make sure (laughs) that it turns out the way they want it to end before they actually read it. Do you know anyone like that? No. All right, not with books, but I will confess that there have been times where I'm watching a TV show that is the tension is building or a relationship is like working out, then not working out, then working out, then not working out or whatever. And I'm like, there are seven seasons of this show on Netflix. (laughs) And so I will Google, do so-and-so end up together? So I've been that person. (laughs) (laughs) Well, think about the fact that we, as Christians, we are living in the story of the history of the human race, a story that's narrated to us in the Bible. And as we live that story, when we encounter difficulties, when we're submerged in the suffering and brokenness of this world, we need to know how does this story end. In order for us to have hope in the midst of suffering, we need to know that there is a transcendent and sovereign Lord who brings the story to the conclusion that we all yearn for. You know, that's a great point because all of these stories are so dramatic that we've been looking Mm. at in our whole conversation. And, you know, we don't really get to have that personal experience of seeing Jesus in the flesh, that transcendent thing. And so you're really dialing into our reality of what is our need and what is our experience of the transcendence of Jesus. 
That's so true. And when you think about it, there's so much tension that builds up in the story of the Bible if you allow it to unfold as a story. You know, is God going to save his people? Is God going to bring the nation back after judging them? Is Messiah going to come? Will Messiah be raised from the dead? You know, all these points of tension in the story. We have the privilege of living in a story, living out a story, Mm -hmm. that we know the end. And I think what happens in the book of Revelation is that God gives the apostle John an opportunity to see and experience and worship the resurrected, transcended, ascendant Jesus in the heavenly throne room so that John won't lose hope. Hmm. So let's just back up and say, okay, There is no book in the Bible that's been more abused than the book of Revelation. Let's just start there. (laughs) That's good. One of the ways it's abused is that we tend to think of it as like this roadmap of markers that we can follow, and this is all going to unfold this way, and then we'll know Jesus is coming back. That's one of the ways that the book has been abused. What if we changed our way of reading the book of Revelation and said the book of Revelation is given to provide hope for a community of believers who are suffering intensely. And that hope comes from them recognizing and knowing and hearing and seeing, in this case, John, the crucified Jesus, the crucified and resurrected Jesus reigning over all. Mm-hmm. And that in his reigning over all, he will bring it to the end that he has ordained. Mm-hmm. That's the experience that the Apostle John has. The book of Revelation in its entirety is more than anything else a book of hope and where we can find it in Jesus. So I want us to take a look at Revelation chapter 5. If you were to ask me this kind of silly question, if you only had one chapter in the Bible that you could keep and hold on to, if your Bible was taken away from you and you only had one chapter in the whole Bible that you could keep, which one would you keep? I'll confess, I would choose Revelation chapter 5. I think the images, the events, the power of this story, they're all so profound. So could someone please read Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 to 10 for us? Why don't I start and then I'll throw it to you, Elisa. Revelation 5.1, Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then in verse 6, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, 
and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And no wonder you want to have this, Mark, because it would take you your entire life to understand it, right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I think the images are so poignant. The power of this passage is John's transported into the very place where God dwells overall, the throne room. The issue here is the scroll. This scroll is a metaphor, a symbol of how God's going to unroll all of human history. How is it going to unfold? Is history just random and stuff's going to happen and there's no plan and no one who's guiding it? This scroll represents how God will bring to fruition all that he has promised to do. And the question is, who's going to be the one that will bring what God has promised to do to pass? So this scroll gives us the privilege of looking forward. It gives us this hope that history isn't just going to be random, that God's going to unfold all of human history and bring it to the end that he wants. Who can do that? Hmm. Who can do that? Hmm. And at the beginning, no one steps forward. None of these fantastical creatures that John describes steps forward. And so when we read in verse 3 that John wept and wept, this isn't like me tearing up at a Hallmark commercial <laughs> with a, you know, a little tear or something. This is profound, deeply grievous weeping because it seems as if what God has promised will not come to pass. Mm-hmm. Where does that leave us? If we had to live our lives with no hope that someone was unwinding history, that someone was bringing to pass what he has promised, where would that leave us? Weeping bitterly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Hopeless. Weeping yeah. bitterly, just like John. And then, then the image, a lamb standing as if slain. The language is sacrificially slaughtered, the slain language. Sacrificially slaughtered lambs do not stand. Sacrificially slaughtered lambs are dismembered and lying on an altar. Mm. This sacrificially slaughtered lamb is standing not just in the place where it has been sacrificially slaughtered, but in the very throne room of God. Mm. So you have the crucifixion, you have the resurrection, the Lamb is standing in the throne room of God, you have the ascension, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension. That's the key, that's what allows history to unfold and all that God has promised come to pass. Okay, so can we just like stop for a minute and feel the chill bumps yeah. or like say hallelujah or something? <laughs> Amen. This great story that we're a part of, the ending of the story, the promise of reconciliation and restoration is certain because Jesus, the Lamb of God, 
died on the cross, was resurrected from the dead, and now reigns with him on high. I can't imagine living or even wanting to live, not believing that is true. And the invitation of so much of the New Testament, right, is because of that reality of where all things are headed, beginning to lean into that as much as we can now through the Holy Spirit. Mm. Like, especially when at the end where it talks about saints from every tribe and language and people and nation, all to be made into this one kingdom and priests all serving together this God We have the opportunity every day to begin to live into that new reality of not being servants of earthly kingdoms, but servants of this kingdom that's so much better with people that don't look like us and don't think like us and from every tribe and tongue, which is pretty amazing too. It is amazing, especially when you think about the fact we can't even live together in a common sense of purpose in our local congregations. Mm This is a vision of the entire world living together. This is Ukrainians and Russians living together. This is Hutu and Tutsis being together. So hopeful, so hopeful. Mark, thank you for being with us and guiding us in these conversations. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. A revealing look at the end of the story as we wrap up this conversation with a vision of the resurrected, reigning, transcendent Jesus, drawing the entire world to live together. Well, it's been great to have Dr. Mark Young offering his insights alongside Elisa Morgan and Daniel Ryan Day in this episode of the Discover the Word podcast, in which we've been focusing on God's transcendence. The Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. You see, here at Discover the Word and Our Daily Bread Ministries, it is our mission to spread the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible to people all around the world. The Lord has provided for us to tell the story of Jesus for almost 85 years now. And it is your financial gifts that uh, play a big role in making it possible for us to fulfill this worthwhile mission. And so if you'd like to support us, simply look for the Donate button when you go online to discovertheword.org. The Donate tab is up there on the top right-hand side of the page. All right, well, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.